0: you think about big numbers in nfl history number 16 is right up there with all of them and we had a challenge with aaron harris and myself of coming up with the top players in nfl history that wore the number 16 our results come up in just a moment this is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. This is your host, Darren Hayes, and we're podcasting from the Pen in western Pennsylvania to bring you the memories of the gridiron, one day at a time. So with Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff supplying us with the tunes, let's go no huddle through today's football history headlines.
1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at SportsHistoryNetwork.com.
0: Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Eaves of PigskinDispatch.com, and welcome once again to the Pigpen. For tonight, we are going to continue on that journey through NFL history by talking about the players and the jersey numbers that they wore. And tonight's guest is a special one, and I hope you enjoy this presentation of the number 16s. We are right in the middle of our Football by Numbers series that we have going on here for the greatest NFL players that wore a certain jersey number. And tonight we are going to talk about the number 16 in NFL history. And boy, we have some great names to talk about. And joining us once again is Aaron Harris of the Football Odyssey podcast. You can find him on the Sports History Network. And Aaron, welcome once again to the Pigpen. Happy to be back. Hey, just uh, turn over one of those slot buckets and have a seat, we're going to talk some number 16s in NFL history here. We have tonight a little bit easier time of it uh, coming in with our list. You know, it was a little bit of a struggle with our 15s. We only had three Hall of Famers. But with the number 16s, we have an amazing 11 players that were the number 16, according to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, that are in the Hall. And uh, their names are, of course, we got Joe Montana, Len Dawson, George Blanda, Frank Gifford, Walt Kiesling, Ed Healy, Arnie Erber, George Musso, Ken Stabler, and Duke Slater. I don't think I'm missing any there. I think that was 11. I had to take my shoes off to count that. talk a little bit about the Football Odyssey. Now, last night you told us a little bit about it, uh, what it was all about. Uh, what do you have coming up that uh, we can look forward to? So what do you have coming up and maybe listeners can look forward to, or maybe just uh, an episode recently that uh, we could go to to Learn something about football?
2: Well, an episode that I did recently was a couple episodes I did recently. One was with a former vice president of special projects for NFL films. His name was Phil Tuckett. Uh, That was really fun. He gave me some great behind the scenes of some of his uh, projects that he's worked on throughout the years. Um, His story about how he got to NFL films was great. And some of his early projects that he had to work on and just some of the people that he got to work with, you know, he's definitely someone who has seen the game from two different vantage points. He was a player first for the Chargers and then he made the leap over to NFL films. Uh, So hearing his story was great. Then I got to talk to Tom Henschel, who's part of the Never Miss a Super Bowl club and hearing his stories about how he got to get the tradition started and some of his memories that he had with his family members going to every game, that was really special. Uh, But coming up, I got a episode, not sure when it's gonna be released yet, but it's gonna be with a couple filmmakers who actually Produced a documentary a few years ago about Joe Roth, who was the University of California, Berkeley quarterback that died of melanoma, but he played his senior year despite his uh, diagnosis. And um, also hoping to have a couple coaches on the uh, podcast and uh, plan on hearing some uh, film reviews too. I got a couple movies that I'm going to be uh, doing reviews on and then I'll release those episodes as well. So, a ah, lot coming right. down the pipe.
0: Yeah, it sounds, sounds great. I, mean, I listened to both of the episodes you just talked about, the, uh, the Mr. Uh, Tuckett. That was a very interesting one, how sort of Ed Sable got him fired from the, the Chargers, got him cut so he would, could become a filmmaker. That was an interesting story he had. And also I listened to the gentleman with the Super Bowl club. He had some, some great stories on how he got tickets, you know, writing the NFL. And, you know, interesting, yeah, very interesting. Yeah,
2: yeah his, uh, his story about how he almost missed one of those games when he was, uh, he was in the hospital. And then the yeah. sister, the nun, is trying to keep him in. He's like, No, I got to get to the Super Bowl. I'm like, hey, Man, <laughs> persistence. I like it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a gamer. That's yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, now we've got to get to our task at hand because we got a big chore tonight here in the pig pen. These number 16s, the greatest of the NFL. We already mentioned the Hall of Famers uh, briefly, but uh, who do you want to go into first?
2: Well, I think you and I, and most everybody would agree who number one is, is uh, Joe Montana. I mean, the guy, you know, won four Super Bowls, three Super Bowl MVPs. He he never had the strongest arm, never was the most athletic, but his main weapon was his intellect. And uh, he's someone who played after, well, after my time. But I always enjoy, or I, I always take notice of, anytime he makes a mistake, because a lot of people talk about how he's able to be cool under pressure. And I think that applies to the end of a game. But it also applies to me. Like, after he throws an interception or a fumble, the guy just comes back and is, uh, he, you know outperforms himself in the sense that he doesn't let that mistake weigh on him. He just goes out like it's a whole new game, and he just does magic. You know, he does what Joe does. Like, I was watching the, um, the catch uh, a few weeks ago against Dallas, and montana mm-hmm. i think had like three interceptions that game you know but by today's standards it really wasn't a good game that he had but every time he threw a pick you know he just came back he would go down for a touchdown and you know when the game mattered most he knew what to do so you know, there's a reason why for years he was considered the greatest quarterback and then you know some people may still consider him it but you know he's definitely if not number one number two
0: right it's interesting you bring up the the catch you know that's sort of that that mystery that's sort of uh, defines that play. The question is, was he trying to throw the ball away, and it was yeah. just uh, you know a great reception, or was that just that well placed? Because he was under a little bit of duress. You know he's yeah. sort of running for his life, heading towards the sideline, and throwing back. You know the middle of the field, and just yeah, you had two tall
2: Jones just right up there. I mean, you, you gotta right. throw that <laughs> ball high if you got him coming at you.
0: Of course, Joe. I, I've seen some interviews with them when you know reporters ask him, "Well, were you throwing that ball away?" Oh, you know, of course, his answer is, "No, that's right where I wanted to put it." You know, we practice that play. <laughs>
2: it's like <laughs> but, it's uh, like the uh, it's almost like the immaculate reception with like uh, Frenchy Fuqua. His lips are always oh, sealed about yeah. like the real. You know, did it touch him or Tatum? It's kind of like with Joe. You know, were you trying to throw it out or was that deliberate? You know, it's. I think that air of mystique kind of adds to the legend. You know,
0: definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they don't tell. That's, that's yeah, yeah. That keeps keeps that going, right? Okay, definitely, definitely Joe Montana is you know top of our, our list for number 16s. Who, who'd you like to talk about next?
2: Number two, I put Bronco Nagurski. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's a Very guy I, w- I wish I could have seen him play live. You know, he, he kind of reminds me because he, he was 6'3, 245 pounds, and that's about the same size that Derrick Henry is, but you know, you're playing back in the 40s. And you have a guy that's playing, you know, he's literally a man amongst boys. It's kind of like when a high school team, like a small high school, has like that really big player that they just feed the ball to, say, here, just take the ball and do something, run over people. And then you have everybody on the defense trying to tackle him, take him down. I mean, when you watch him, it's just amazing. And the fact that he also, he was an all-pro at fullback, left the game to go into pro wrestling, came back and played left tackle, I believe it came in all pro that position too. And then in the championship game, he uh, went back to being a tailback or a fullback and scored two touchdowns and helped them win the championship game. So if you want to talk about versatility, he took it to a whole nother level because he, he contributed well on defense too.
0: definitely and i think i neglected to say him with the hall of famers i think that was the one i was missing but yeah definitely uh, bronco Nagursky's in the hall of fame and he also has a little bit of a controversy in his championship game that he played i don't know if you're familiar with that story no um and i forget who who was playing the bears at the time it might have been uh the portsmouth spartans maybe i'm incorrect on there but it came down it was a real close game the whole game and it came down to a play. Back then, the rule was the quarterback could only throw the ball if he was more than five yards behind the line of scrimmage. You know, this is the early 30s or late 20s, whenever that game was. And uh, Nagurski ended up catching a pass from Red Grange, I believe. And they said that Grange was within like two or three yards of the line of scrimmage and when he threw the ball. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know Nagurski caught the pass, scored the touchdown, and you know the Bears won by like three or something. You know, it was definitely the the game breaker. So that's that's still a big controversy. With the
2: do they have like a do they have like checkerboard fields for that? Then
0: uh, I think that was long after the checkerboard fields. The checkerboard fields were more like when the forward pass was first starting out in the I think the early teens. Because you had to be. So like – I don't the... think they had. Any...
2: You had to throw, like, five yards to, like, the left or right, at least, or something like that, so that right. was the way. I didn't know if that was the yeah. same rule they had going into the 20s. But yeah, 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 I think the
0: checkerboards, I think they had them only in the college game in those early teens oh, years, okay. like 1907 okay. to 1913 or something.
2: Gotcha, okay. Yeah, so. Well, hey, can, you, can, you, you can't have a good uh, championship game without some controversy, so.
0: No, no, that, most yeah. definitely. Great stories about Bronco Nagurski, great player, definitely in the top 12 of the number 16, so. Who would you like to talk about next?
2: Uh, For number three, I had Frank Gifford. And um, Frank, to me, I think, was kind of like the first modern NFL celebrity. Uh, You know, Red Grange early on in, you know, Prohibition and like, you know, the roaring 20s and going into the 30s, you know, he was definitely the guy that was the first real pro player that everyone recognized. But I think Frank Gifford in the era in which, you know, television was coming around and advertising had really taking on this whole life form of its own and many different mediums. I think he was a guy that kind of had turned the football player into being this sort of iconic occupation that it was, you know, he was doing cigarette ads. He was doing, uh, I think he had maybe a couple of liquor sponsorships too. So it was, it was cool to see like that transition to see what people thought was just a, a lowly profession and see him just kind of make it a sexy profession, I guess.
0: Advertising all the vices. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. But and and but he you know he he got that because he was a good player. You know he he won MVP in '56. Uh, he was first or second team All Pro six years of his career. Um, and you know for a halfback he threw a lot of passes. You know, I see like a lot of those highlights where he's doing like those halfback option passes. And you know he could throw a good ball too. Um, and he was the anchor for that offense when Vince Lombardi was the offensive coordinator. So I think he's definitely deserving of being on that high on the list.
0: I I totally agree with you there. Definitely a great player, and he was a great uh, broadcaster too with Monday Night Football for years and years.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 funny to listen to going back. Is um, and I say this on my show all the time. I go through YouTube and I watch a lot of old games, and when you listen to like those Monday Night Football broadcasts. It's funny because it's like you know they're having like their own little party up in the booth while the game is going on. <laughs> so it's like you gotta, you can, I can see why people would tune in even if you weren't a football fan just to hear the commentary from him and Cosell and
0: Dandy well, Don Meredith.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, it's definitely <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was definitely more of an event primetime football than it is now. But
0: I mean, as big of a personality as Gifford was to have, uh, you know, Dandy Don and Howard Cosell in the booth with you, that, that yeah, you were like uh, fighting for airtime there <laughs> yeah. but in that booth, you know, yeah. But definitely a great player, Frank Gifford. Definitely yeah. deserves to be on that list. Who would you like to talk about next?
2: Len Dawson. Ah, okay. Yeah, and I, I, I'm, I'm curious to hear about your opinion on him because so he finished his career with 239 touchdowns and 183 interceptions. And that's actually a better ratio than a lot of his contemporaries had because, you know, a lot of quarterbacks from his time, they actually ended up with more interceptions than they did touchdowns. But he actually had a really good passer rating. You know, it was even better than some of the guys that followed him, like uh, Aikman and Fouts and Warren Moon. Um, and I read something interesting that there were some people that considered him sort of like the prototype of Joe Montana. You know, he wasn't hmm. physically the most dominant guy. He didn't have the biggest arm wasn't really the most athletic but he was very much a precision passer very someone who played good percentages but could also make you know big plays down the field when need be so i'm kind of curious what your opinion like do you agree with that assessment like do you think he was kind of like a montana-esque player in that time uh,
0: i don't know if i've ever really thought about him playing you know, like a joe montana-esque and i i don't i can't say that i've watched like full game films of him because was a little bit before my era of watching Game. Well, I guess I guess he did. He played till seventy five. So I don't. I just don't remember him as a as a player, except for you know like the Super Bowl wins and yeah. you know, watching those highlight games. Uh, definitely, I, I always look at it. I, one of my favorite things for quarterbacks for comparison, and I'm I'm talking the modern day quarterbacks. So let's say mid seventies till today mm-hmm. is that uh, that touchdown to interception ratio before like nineteen seventy five. It's really throw it out the window. You, you sort of alluded to it when you were saying, you know, the offense is counted more on the off, on the running game than they did the passing game for the most part. You know, it's sort yeah. of three-yards cloud of dust is still in there. They pass just to survive and get a first down most of the time. To have 239 touchdowns, 183 interceptions, like you said, that is an awesome ratio for that era of football. You know, and, I mean, his career lasted from 1957 to 1975, I mean, just think about the changes that were in football and in the NFL. I mean, even the helmet technology and everything that happened in yeah. that, uh, was it, 17, 19 seasons. That's just uh, that's an incredible um, era to play in. And to have, you know, the, the quarterback record also, he is 94-57-8. And, and, you know, I hate to say this, but his first three years he was on the Steelers, you know, and they were – Steelers of the 50s were not the – yeah. You know, they, were the, they were in the cellar, you know, then played in, with the Browns for a couple years in 1661, uh, the Dallas Texans in 62, and then the Dallas Texans, of course, turned into the Kansas City Chiefs and uh, had a brilliant career, you know, 14 seasons with the Texans and Chiefs franchise. So uh, I, I definitely think he should be on that list.
2: Yeah, and I, and I think actually, too, Paul Brown had talked to Hank Stram and actually said you shouldn't sign him. Like, he he didn't think he was a good enough player to be on a roster in any sort of professional league. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So even even the experts can get it wrong, you know?
0: Yeah, definitely. (laughs) But, you know, winning that Super Bowl, he had some great Kansas City teams back then. So I definitely think he deserves to be there. All right. Who else do we want to talk about?
2: Uh, So number five, I had George Musso. And George was 6'2", 262. Uh, he was the first player to have NFL honors at two different positions. He was the all decade team for the 30s. he was a four-time NFL champ and he was named to the 75th anniversary um, the 75th anniversary all-time team, but for the the two-way team. So they had two separate um, lists that year for people who had played you know two-way football, I guess from you know the 20s all the way up to you know the earlier mid 50s which I thought was interesting. I didn't know they had, you know, a separate list for that. Um, hmm. But, you know, he, he made the team, and, you know, he was a big boy, especially for the time he played. Uh, you know, the, not too many people that were going to move him off the uh, the line of scrimmage. And plus, you know, playing, no. playing for the Bears, too. You know, if you were going to play for the Bears, you had to play good, good strong physical defense. And, you know, four-time NFL champion, he served his part.
0: Yeah, absolutely. A great player in uh, NFL history. I mean, like you say, you can't can't see too many on stats for, you know, an, an offense alignment, defense alignment, but um and especially they didn't have the sacks and everything they were counting yeah. back then, but but just I mean, another great football name, you know, just a, his natural name Musso. you know, you just yeah associate yeah. it with a moose and Yeah,
2: you can't it's natural for him, yeah. Six,
0: two, 262 pounds. That's that's a moose. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh who do we want to go to next on our list here?
2: Uh I went Duke Slater next. Uh, he was a okay, great choice. All pro seven of his 10 years in the league, uh, cleared the way for Ernie Nevers. Uh, and then by all accounts, he was athletic as anybody on those Cardinal teams that he played for. Um, you know, he, he was someone who often required uh, double teams when he was playing on defense, too. And he earned praise from uh, Fritz Chrysler, uh, Newt Rockney and George Alice, um, you know, first lineman to make all pro in seven seasons. So, you know, he was someone that definitely pioneered that position, no doubt, and really kind of I guess took a position that normally people I guess still today look over. But you know, he definitely he definitely turned that position and dominated it.
0: Oh, most definitely. Um, our our partner on the Sports History Network, uh, Joe Ziemba, who's sort of the Chicago football expert, really? he has a whole episode I believe on Duke Slater, and it's a very interesting episode. It's one of his Joe's older episodes, but just some of the out. stories that come out of that. It's uh, it's really good. But uh, he started off, you with know, some teams that we don't even think of, some def- defunct teams in the NFL. You know, the Milwaukee Badgers is who he played for, and the Rock Island Independents. You know, yeah, that, those are the two teams. Then he goes the Chicago Cardinals. And it's uh, you know just some great football lore and a real trendsetter and trailblazer for you know the African American player you know yeah. playing back in that era of football. That's uh, a great thing. You know played from 1922 to 1931 in the NFL. Uh, a great player, Duke Slater.
2: And he actually uh, he became a judge after his career as a uh, oh, did football he? player. Yeah, yeah. I think he. I don't remember oh, where. Okay. I don't remember where he went to school, but yeah, yeah. He had a law degree and he ended up becoming a judge.
0: Wow, that's, yeah. that's awesome! You know, yeah. they have great careers after football. You love to hear that, yeah. And the players can make it. Okay, uh, so we have Duke Slater on that list. So that's, that takes us. That's seven of our twelve that we have filled up. Who would you like to talk about next?
2: George Blanda, great guy. player. Yeah, he was a guy that he if he could have played in a wheelchair. He probably would have. You know, he was <laughs> the first guy to score two thousand points in the NFL. Um, you know, just as long as he played as an undeniable achievement, uh, you know, he's the three time AFL champion and, uh, you might, you might know differently, but from what I've seen, he was actually the first professional quarterback that I think utilized the spread formation uh, and, not... and one of the earliest games I've seen on YouTube is the 1962 AFL championship game between the Houston Oilers and the, um, the Dallas Texans right before they went to Kansas City, and it's not like a spread formation that we think, where you have you know two receivers lined up way outside the numbers, a couple slot receivers. I mean, you still have a tight end, you know, two receivers, and then you have basically like two wingbacks. Um, but yeah, you know, he's by himself. He's dropping back. He's throwing the ball, you know, all over the field, and that's the first time I've seen. Uh, and pro football. I mean, I know in college, you had some colleges that were running the spread, you know, in the early fifties, like at TCU, but, um, yeah, he, he was running that offense to, you know, great efficiency. Um, he was a fun player to watch and, you know, a guy that's as old as he was being able to stick around and still contribute to his team. I mean, you got to put him on the list.
0: Oh, absolutely. He has kind of an interesting story why he left Chicago. I'm not sure if you're aware of it. Mm-hmm. But he he played for the Bears for many, many years. I mean, he started off uh, with the Bears in 49 and then uh, bounced around a little bit, but came back to the Bears and played all, all the way to 1958. But he was kind of mad at George Hallis because Blanda wanted to be a quarterback, and Hallis considered him, well, you're the backup quarterback, but you're our kicker and blanda wasn't real fond of that thing but he really didn't have many choices so in 1959 he retired from football when the afl kicked in in 1960 they begged him to come out of retirement you know houston the houston oilers ownership did and uh he joined the oilers and they promised him you know some quarterback at least the opportunity to start at quarterback and he did and he did some kicking there and had a great uh second career you know with the afl as a quarterback so it's
2: I think I think he has a a quote. I don't know if I'm getting it uh, precisely what he said, but he said, "I'm not a kicker. I'm a quarterback that kicks."
0: Right, right, something like that. I, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do remember something to that uh, effect. Yes, but yeah, definitely George Blanda should be on our list here. All right, so we have eight. We're looking for twelve. Who do we want to talk about next?
2: Uh, I threw Kenny Stabler on the list, and oh, I, another I, Raider quarterback. Yeah. I probably would have put him a little higher if he would have had the same success with 16 as he did with 12. Uh, But, you know, he, he was a fun quarterback to watch. You know, he has all around athleticism, you know, left-handed quarterbacks can be kind of drastically different in terms of they either throw a really pretty ball or they throw just like this weird wobbly ball that just looks awkward even to watch. Uh, But he was a guy that had a nice spin on the ball Uh, and he always kept his team in, Contention all the way to the end. And, you know, if it was for Pittsburgh, we could be looking at the Raiders as the dynasty of the 70s. So,
0: oh, they definitely could.
2: There's something to be said for that as the quarterback that, uh, you know, really kept those Raiders teams down to the wire, usually in the AFC championship game during that tough decade.
0: Yeah I mean here's here's a perfect example of what I was telling you about the quarterback reading or quarterback uh, touchdown to interception ratio you know that that's sort of that era I'm talking about I don't really I sort of discount cuz Stabler was 194 touchdowns 222 interceptions mm-hmm. but his quarterback as record as a starter was 96 49 and 1 so those numbers really don't match up but I think it's just a solid running game and uh you know, back yeah, it's... in that era
2: I mean, t- today, it's just a turnover is so consequential, you know, because I think nowadays, you know, moving the ball, because, I mean, if you get a turnover, you know, you could just throw up a 50-yard bomb and get a pass interference, and then you could be right there in the red zone, you know. So it seems like back then, you know, if you really wanted to, you know, if you had a turnover, you know, you could rely on defense to play some tough ball. But, yeah, yeah, it definitely seems like you could take more chances back in the day or, you know, risk-taking was more – natural i guess or more natural part of the game than it is today and i guess and i guess too because they were throwing the ball a lot deeper than they do now you know now it's i think it's more of a horizontal game whereas back then you know if you wanted to pass you just kind of launched it
0: right i mean the defensive the the defensive backs had a little bit more freedom to you know yeah destroy a a receiver if they wanted to and you know hold them down the field and everything so that definitely you know takes some uh effect into what the totals are yeah. but his his career i always sort of paralleled him with bradshaw because they both came in bradshaw came in in 69 and uh, to a you know a team that he sort of turned the fortunes around you know stabler came into the raiders in 1970 they both wore number 12 for uh, stabler for many years bradshaw for all his years uh took their teams to the top of the afc faced each other many times uh weren't the the True number one quarterback their first few years with their t- respective teams. You know, Stabler yeah. had Daryl Daryl Lamonica that he was battling with for, for f- few few seasons. Uh, that he was unseating and they went back and forth there a few times. You know, where Bradshaw was, you know, had uh, Joe Gilliam and Terry Hanratty that he was yeah. competing with. So, but uh, yeah, great quarterback. Uh, it's a shame that the Raiders let him go and he went to Houston and New Orleans because that's sort of his career sort of like fell off when he got away yeah. from uh John Madden
2: yeah and I, I think too uh I think Daryl lamonica was the uh was the quarterback for the immaculate reception game until he was benched for stabler I think in the second half or maybe even the fourth quarter and that's when he had that, that run that basically gave him that seven to six lead
0: right yeah, yeah. stabler got him back in that game yeah
2: so, so yeah he was He's another guy too. I wish I could have seen in my time because he seems like a quarterback, like like Joe Namath in a lot of ways, kind of like that devil may care uh, attitude. You know, the kind of guys that could just go out. I think Bobby Lane is another guy too. They could just go out till you know three, four o'clock in the morning and show up and play on Sunday.
0: Yeah, definitely and he also had that nefarious play where uh the holy roller play against yeah. san diego yeah. yeah so he sort of pushed it forward and you know i think it was dave casper's tight end ended up falling on it in the end zone and they yeah they beat the they beat the san diego chargers it was late in the season and uh i think knocked uh san diego out of the playoffs or put them in a wild card in oakland something like that it was something of effect yeah and it made a difference in the season for for san diego but uh yeah, yeah very very good player ken stabler
2: they they had a they had a lot of uh, memorable plays too. It's like there was the Holy Roller, the Sea of Hands, the Ghost of the Post. It seems like he oh, yeah. I don't know if he was the quarterback for Ghost of the Post, but it seems like they always had uh, just some sort of crazy play every season that got into NFL lore.
0: Well, he even even his college game with Alabama, the run in the mud was that was Kenny Stabler. What is the run that? In the mud. If you ever get,
2: I've never heard of oh, that. It
0: was the, Oh, you never no. YouTube it YouTube it tonight. Uh, you know, one of Bear Bryant's you know, crowning moments. Uh, it was a real tight game, I believe. It was an Iron Bowl game, so it was against Auburn. Mm-hmm. And I forget the, the logistics of the game, but it was a real close game. Alabama's down. It's a real muddy field. They're, they used to play uh, the Iron Bowl in uh, Birmingham every year at the um, uh, God, Legion Field, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a, a quagmire in this game. Yeah, real close game, and all of a sudden uh, Kenny Stabler scrambles and uh, does almost similar to what he did against you know, Pittsburgh in that immaculate reception game. Just has this great run that uh, you think he's going to going down a bunch of times, but he escapes and scores a touchdown, and you know ends up being the the victory points that the Alabama needed to knock off Auburn. So.
2: Some guys just have the magic.
0: Yeah, Yeah. he definitely was. There's just that will, you know, there's something about him. Got the it factor, you know? Yeah,
2: yeah, definitely.
0: All right, we have Kenny Stabler as our ninth choice to go on our list. Now, who do we want to talk about next? We still have some Hall of Famers on the board here, too.
2: Well, Another one that I had was Arnie Herber. Oh, yes. And uh, Arnie wasn't a guy that I was really familiar with until I was, you know, coming up with a list for this, but... uh, he was kind of, I think a lot of people considered him and Don Houston to be the first quarterback-receiver combination, the first dynamic one in the NFL. And a lot of people would consider Arnie to be the, uh, I guess, kind of like the one that paid the way for guys like Sid Luckman Sammy Ball to come in. Um, you know, I think he had, the most touchdowns he had in the season was like 11 which, yeah. yeah, obviously, you know, some people get you know 11 touchdowns within two or three games today, but I think back then, I'm not even sure if they were playing 12 games back then. But um, you know, to to be able to throw 11 touchdowns when most teams are still r- running the single wing or uh, just trying to pound the ball any which way, that's that's a pretty good accomplishment. And, uh, you know, he actually led the league in multiple passing statistics for a few years, uh, three all pros, and I think had three or four NFL titles. So, you got to put yeah. him in there, yeah.
0: Here's an interesting fact about him, not, not so much about his career. He was born Green Bay, Wisconsin, went to high school, Green Bay, Wisconsin, college, wisconsin regis you know college played for the green bay packers he was just a hometown boy never left home you know hometown hero uh yeah like you said connection with don hudson uh, that who's the definitely the greatest wide receiver of his era right and you know herber's the one that threw most of those passes uh that hudson caught so yeah just a phenomenal player i definitely i was hoping you'd say him because i think he definitely deserves to be on our list Uh, okay where do we want to go next here That's our that's our tenth
2: ninth or tenth. I have him as number nine on my list. Yeah. Okay. Uh, For ten, I went with Jim Plunkett. Uh, Okay. uh, This could be some people. This could be kind of like a volatile topic for some people because there are some people that think he should be in the Hall of Fame without question. Uh, Others are okay with him not being in it. Um, You know, he he has two Super Bowls and he had a great story behind him. You know, he gets drafted by the Patriots. It doesn't pan out there. He goes to the 49ers, same ordeal. He doesn't pan out there. But when he goes to the Raiders, you know, he gets a 8-2 and two playoff record. Um, he had average numbers. He was never really one of the top quarterbacks in any area he played in. But, you know, he can move around. He could throw on the run. Uh, he had a good arm. And, you know, frankly, he never really let the moment get to him. You know, for a quarterback that's had a subpar career like he did, you know, whenever he's thrust into having to – win two Super Bowls, you know the guy didn't really had seemingly you know seemingly no uh, pressure on him. So definitely someone i I I don't want to say definitively or not if he should be in the Hall of Fame, but I definitely think he should be on this list.
0: Uh, I'm sort of on the fence. I've I've looked at him. I'm on the fence if he should be on the list. Oh, yeah. And here's why. I mean, definitely the Super Bowl championship show. That definitely is the the 1980 uh, NFL Player of the Year, you know, Comeback Player of the Year. Quarterback record for his career, and he had a lengthy career, sort of uh, almost mirrored Bradshaw and Stabler we were talking about, from 71 to 1986. So played in that uh, 1970s and 1980s. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 72-and-72-and-0 72 72 is a quarterback record as a starter. Just under 26,000 yards for that length of career. 164 touchdowns, 198 interceptions. So the numbers aren't great, but he's got the hardware. That's what I'm saying. He's sort of got me on the fence a little bit. And I think there's some other names I would consider to be talked about with him mm-hmm. to make this list. Maybe that's one you can convince me about here later after we talk about some of these other names.
2: Yeah, we could revisit. Okay, yeah, there? we could revisit. We could revisit, Jim. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put
0: him on a, on a standby here right now. We'll come back to him. Who, who is your next one on the list? You said you had to. Learn. I had
2: uh, Josh Cribbs.
0: Oh, okay.
2: Yeah.
0: That wasn't somebody I was thinking about, but okay.
2: Yeah. So, so. Josh is. I, I think most people would uh, acknowledge Devin Hester is the best uh, returner. I mean, whether you're going punts or kickoffs. Uh, but, you know, Josh was impressive in his own right. I mean, I think especially he he primarily made his money off of uh, kickoff returns. He was an all-pro two times. He was the all-decade team. And he's actually tied for kickoff return touchdowns. So special teams is really where he made his, his name. He never really contributed much on offense aside from, you know, some specialty or gadget plays. But he was a guy that could turn a game around. I mean, I know especially – you know, having, being a Steeler fan, watching him go up against Pittsburgh a couple times, he definitely made them pay the price a few times. I can remember one game. I think That's... it was, I think it was 2009 when it was like, uh, they were on like a four game losing streak and they needed to win. All they needed to win was like one more game to get in the playoffs. And this is at this point, there's only like a month left in the season. And uh, they go for a Thursday night game in Cleveland. And I think, he returns a kickoff or a punt for a touchdown and kind of puts a nail in the coffin because I think they sacked Ben Roethlisberger like nine times in that game. So, like, good defense and special teams by him won him that game, and that virtually was the game that kind of kept him out because they had went out and need help from there. But if they would have won that game, they would have gone in.
0: No, that's a good point. I, you know, I didn't even consider cribs on here, but you you definitely make a compelling case for him. And you're you're right. I sort of forgot he was quite the weapon. For they used him on a little bit on offense too. Almost, you know, if they would have had a little bit more wildcat in the NFL back then, he probably would have been a great wildcat.
2: Yeah, player. yeah. He did, Yeah, he ran in like some plays, and then they would do you know some of like those end arounds or you know some some plays where they can get him out in space, as if he, you know, he was in an uh, in a kick return or a upon situation. But yeah, he, he definitely had a, a few years where he was one of the most recognizable players in the game. Um, not, not sure if he'll ever get any Hall of Fame candidacy or if he ever should, but you know, he, he was a fun player to watch. And I think he stood out at his position and a position that's very hard to make a living in, especially nowadays.
0: Yeah, very very interesting with the Josh Kerbs thing. Yeah. Huh, yeah, I like that pick. We'll have to put him as a, one to come back to here too. Okay, yeah. Um, is that that it for what you have for list
2: yeah those, those are the players that i uh wanted to make a case for
0: okay i they still um we have two hall of famers that are on that we haven't talked about and i think uh definitely we should bring those two up the first one's walt kiesling and we we talked about him uh in an earlier number for in this series um but he had a great career he played from 1926 where he played with the duluth eskimos and then uh played a couple years there, then played with the Pottsville Maroons, the Chicago Cardinals for uh, a good amount of seasons, uh, the Bears for a season, Green Bay Packers, and then finished up his career as a Steeler in 1937-1938, and uh, he was another one that was a guard tackle position, 6'3", 260, he was in the Hall of Fame, like we said, it was one year he made All-Pro uh had an nfl championship under his belt is the on the all 1920s team hall of fame team definitely think uh like you know definitely want to talk about him because of um being in the hall of fame and it's it's in one of those eras where there's not a lot of stats especially for a lineman but uh a very good player that's uh highly regarded so i'd like to put him on our maybe list to discuss to put on our or and, top twelve. I'm not saying put him on the list right now, but one to have under consideration. I guess I'm trying he, to say
2: he was the, he. eventually coached the Steelers, didn't he?
0: Yes, he was. A, he was a coach in the NFL too. Yeah, so yeah, I think Steelers I think, coach.
2: I think I I know him more as a coach than I do as a player. But yeah, I mean those, those linemen, especially from the pre statistic days, I mean it's kind of. I think it's easy to take for granted, but you know the, the kind of offenses they were running, you know, they required a lot of thinking for the offensive linemen, too i mean you know, they're running all kind of crazy trick plays and reverses and like you know crazy laterals and everything like that uh so i think offensive linemen pretty much had to have a good handle on the overall offensive scheme as opposed to just plowing through up the middle like the game would become you know going into the 50s
0: most definitely yeah. a lot of pulling and traps and things yeah. like that so and the other hall of famer that we didn't really talk about is ed healy and Ed was another one that was a you know, tackle, guard, and end on defense, two-way player. Uh, he played from 1920 through 1927. Another Rock Island independent player, uh, Chicago Bears. Uh, was with, where He had most of his career, though. Six, six years with the Bears, three years with Rock Island. Um, again, not a lot of stats on him, but he is in the Hall of Fame, four-time All-Pro, and also on that hall of fame team of the 1920s with Keesling, i would say he's probably even a stronger consideration with the four all pros than even Keesling
2: is yeah four, four consideration for all pros when he played seven seasons that's a pretty good pretty, right, good, so pretty good standout yeah
0: then, then uh you know everything's sort of um so, so mediocrity of our our other players but you know some players to mention you know Vinny on there he wore the the number 16 for nine seasons from yeah. 1998 to 2007 i don't know if i would put him he, he would make the list but definitely somebody to talk about i mean his record was 90 123 and one so not a very good record touchdowns 275 267 that's why he sort of got that name of Vinny Interceptivity, they yeah. call them you know
2: i never heard that
0: um <laughs> oh that, that's, yeah that's had you know started off played uh Many years with some poor Tampa teams. Six years in Tampa. Then he went to Cleveland for three seasons, sort of uh, unseated uh, Bernie Kosar, and Kosar got sort of booted out team town. The Browns then went to Baltimore, so he played with the Ravens for a couple seasons. Then finished up his career with playing for the Jets in Dallas and New England and Carolina, and sort of that uh, that dependable backup. Uh, But uh, you know, had a. a good career you know had a great great college career with the miami hurricanes under jimmy johnson um i believe he has a heisman if i'm not mistaken i think he went to heisman definitely somebody to, to mention on this, this list another player that's on there is uh jake Plummer, where, where the number another quarterback jake uh, the snake dad da, jake the snake you know the Cardinals for a little while and the Broncos. Jared Goff is on there. He wore it for four seasons, you know, kind of a controversial player right now. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, a certain Arnie Chapman is going to endear him here this coming season.
2: Yeah. He's, we're, we're not, I don't think we're going to endear him for this list, though.
0: <laughs> no, no, I don't think yeah, so either. Yeah. And another interesting wide receiver is uh, Lance Moore uh, wore that number 16 for nine seasons. Not saying that he should be on the list, but, uh, you know, just sort of his resume, 389 receptions, 44 touchdowns, uh, just over 4,800 yards of uh, receiving, you know, played for the Saints and uh, the, the Lions and one year in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, the, didn't really have a, a good uh, year with the Steelers, which uh, could have been something great, but um, yeah. so, solid player, uh, just worth mentioning here. So do you, you have anybody else that you'd like to talk to for our consideration?
2: <laughs> no, th- those were all the guys that I had uh, similar similar feelings on.
0: Okay, now let's see. We had, we agreed on, I have a, we have a solid nine. Let's, let's just review here. The nine that uh, we have on here. Joe Montana, mm-hmm. Len Dawson, Bronco Nagurski, George Blanda, Frank Gifford, Walt, Ke- oh, I'm sorry, Arnie Erber, George Musso, Kenny Stabler, Duke Slater, and in our ones that are consideration, we have Josh Cribs. Nine. Now we have not nine on the list. We need to pick three of these players. Jim Plunkett, Walt Kiesling, Ed Healy, and Josh Cribbs. Would... I'm leaning towards I. Your, your, your Cribs pick and your Plunkett pick, I think, are solid, and I would agree with you putting them on that list.
2: Yeah, I, I think if I had to pick one of those guys, I'd probably put Cribs because I think he had more of an impact on his position than Plunkett had on his. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I, Cribs stood out much more. And, you know, we, we could have the debate as if it's harder to stand out as a quarterback or as a kick returner. And, you know, maybe we can draw the same conclusion for different reasons. You know, kick returners are kind of far and few in between who are going to really make their name known. Um, whereas quarterback, so you could have a lot of good ones, so it could be hard to keep pace with it. Um, I just think Cribs had more of an impact on the game and he was someone who was more threatening when he was on the field so I would put him on there before I put Plunkett in
0: okay I, I that's sort of where I'm leaning towards too i'm I'm thinking you know two of those we gotta pick three of them and two of the four are in the Hall of Fame already and I'm not sure Josh Cribs is ever gonna get a sniff of the Hall of Fame yeah and Plunkett may get us you know may get there but I'm not sure that he will either I mean the Super Bowl championship definitely helps. Um, but Keesling and Healy are already in the Hall of Fame, and I almost think uh, I, I think I'd pound my fist on there that I think those two ought to ought to get two of those yeah he, two of those three spots. Well,
2: Healy, I I agree with. I mean, four years as a All Pro out of seven seasons. I mean, that's a that's a pretty good resume. Yeah, Keesling, I'm still not too familiar with what he's done as a player. I still think of him as a coach. It, it's hard to say too. You know, sometimes like those journeymen from back in those uh early days from like the 20s going into the 30s um seems like they didn't really maybe stick around long enough with the team either because maybe they just wanted more money to play elsewhere or because they just weren't good enough for that team so it's hard to judge that pre-statistic era but although if he's in the hall of fame i guess it's for good reason so perhaps we should put him in there before plunkett
0: okay so We'll, we'll round out uh, those, our uh, top 12 with uh, Kiesling, Healy, and Josh Cribs. And we'll put uh, Jim Plunkett as an honorable mention or a 12B maybe yeah. or, or something, however you want to say it. So I think that's a pretty solid list. And that that's probably the most challenging of the numbers that we've come across so far. Six mean, the the 16, Ten, you know, 10s and 12s, there was a lot of good players in those ones, and we had to make some choices at the end. But this was probably the hardest at the back end of that to, to choose uh, players, especially when there's 11. We're, we're talking about, you know, possibly taking Hall of Famers off that list too. That's, yeah. That's where that conversation did. So that was, a, that was a great discussion. I really appreciate you being here, Aaron Harris, of the Football Odyssey. We uh, want to make sure everybody can uh, know where to find you. So I don't know if you have any uh, social media tags you want to throw out there some
2: yeah you can find me on twitter at football odyssey and then i have uh, an instagram page as well uh, i post those links in every episode that you can get on uh, you know, spotify apple podcast that you're wherever you get it so just click the link and it'll take you directly towards my uh, social handles
0: Okay, and how about your website? Because your website's outstanding. We didn't, haven't really talked too much about that, but you really have some good stuff on there. And uh, I know we've talked a little bit about it in email and stuff, but uh, tell us a little bit about the website.
2: Yeah, so like I mentioned in the uh, previous episode that this was a um, venture that really began as a blog where I was blogging just about uh, football history topics and uh, things of that nature. Uh, Since I've been doing the podcast, I haven't been writing in there as much, but it's definitely something I want to uh, get back in the swing of and revisit. So I have some articles that I'm uh, in the middle of writing right now, and I don't have a timetable of when those will be released, but it should be uh, soon enough. So um, definitely want to get some more design on the uh, website as well, and then put the podcast up there as well. So it can be kind of like a one-stop shop as well. So
0: excellent well we look forward to that let us know uh when s- some of those post up there and uh, we'll make sure we let everybody know about them and we definitely got to have you on uh, again for some of these numbers we still have a you know 80 some numbers yeah, to go through here so yeah. so we definitely it's been a good time and we appreciate your time you are taking with us uh this evening and uh having this great discussion of nfl great number 16s
2: yeah man, i'm happy you had me on this was a uh a good a good uh task to do you know sometimes you get kind of Lost in the shuffle with like how many players were which numbers, so to be able to go back and like look at these guys and kind of compare and contrast them and see you know who was really the best at this uh, certain number. It's a unique topic, so keep keep it up, man. I'm glad you uh, this series is going well. Looking forward to the next all right. one. All right, all
0: well, right. Oh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll we'll see you in a future episode here, and we'll also check you out on the Football Odyssey podcast, yeah. and it's on uh, believe weekly or your weekly on that.
2: Uh. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to make it a weekly thing. Sometimes it could be bi-weekly, but I definitely try to get at least three episodes a month. I shoot for four, but, you know, three is definitely, you, you'll hear three, at least three a month.
0: All right, awesome. Just check out that Football Odyssey podcast, Sports History Network. we go to, you know, Aaron's social uh, things. We'll, we'll also post those on our, these show notes of this, and uh, you can check that out. And uh, thank you once again, Aaron Harris, for joining us on the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch podcast.
2: Right, thanks for having me and hopefully i'll be able to have you on my show too we can uh, go into a deep dive discussion about your uh football journey take it easy
0: well what a great discussion we have with aaron harris we really appreciate him being able to join us uh the last two numbers 15s and 16s what a great thrill that was to have some great insight from the football odyssey and uh We're going to continue on in their series. We're going to go to the 17s. It's going to be a solo version. And then the number 18s, we're going to bring back Joe Ziemba, the great historian and author of some great books on Chicago football history and his insight on the number 18s. Then we're going to go to 19s. We're bringing in the Brothers Newman from the Hello Old Sports podcast. And then number 20s, we'll have... Arnie Chapman, the football history dude himself, will join us here on the program. So that's what you have coming up to look forward to. And we also are going to put in there a great interview we had on March 17th with Jennifer Taylor Hall, the author of Amos Alonzo Stagg, College Football's Man in Motion, as we talk about the great innovator of the game, Amos Alonzo Stagg. You don't want to miss those episodes. So till tomorrow, everybody, have a great Gridiron Day. special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast.
1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.